may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis or Galatians chapter two. <laughs> Galatians chapter two, we're going to be looking at verses eleven to sixteen. I'll read that in a moment. Before we do that, though, you know, one of the interesting things when you go to the book of Acts and to see how Luke writes the book of Acts, you can really divide up the book in two parts with two personalities. Uh, The first one being Peter. Much of the book of Acts is dealing with Peter in chapters 1 through 12. And then you see Paul in chapters 13 to 28. And Luke does that for a reason. He wants to show the two main personalities. Now, again, it's not to say that you don't see Paul before that, but as far as his ministry, it starts with chapter 13. It's also interesting how Luke wants to make it very clear just how he writes that both Peter and Paul are equal. This is what I mean by that. He compares them throughout the book. In other words, in writing the book of Acts, Luke seems to have made a special effort to show everything that Peter did, Paul did. Thus, he tells us the name of both Peter's first Gentile convert, Cornelius, and Paul's first Gentile convert, Sergius Paulius. He tells how Peter was visited by an angel and how Paul was visited by an angel. He tells how Peter healed a lame man and how Paul healed the lame man. He tells us how Peter raised someone from the dead and how Paul raised someone from the dead. All this is in the book of Acts. He tells how Peter was miraculously released from prison and how Paul was miraculously released from prison. He tells us how Peter had confrontation with a magician and how Paul had a confrontation with a magician. Miraculous influences of Peter's shadow and the miraculous influence of Paul's handkerchief, both doing miracles. He tells how once Peter was worshipped by Gentiles and his his reaction, and he tells how once Paul was worshipped by Gentiles and his reaction. Do you see what Luke was doing? He did it without even telling us, other than with uh, writing it, that Peter and Paul are, are two apostles sent by God of equal stature, of equal authority. Again, Luke very clearly established the equality of both apostles. That's That's huge. Because as Peter went to the Jews and Paul went to the Gentiles, what, what Luke was doing, what really the Holy Spirit was doing through Luke, he was making sure that when it was all said and done, we would be one. We would be a unified church. There wouldn't be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. A gospel for the Jews and a gospel for the Gentiles. There would be one. There would be unity. Now really, that's what we're talking about in the book of Galatians because what was happening in Galatians is there was a group of, of people that claimed to be Christians, the Judaizers. They, they started in Jerusalem. They moved out from Jerusalem to different area churches, Gentile churches, and they were preaching the message, yes, Christ died for sins, but if you want to be a true Christian, you've got to become a Jew. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to have the ceremonial law. You've got to keep the laws of the Jews. And Paul, wanting to correct the error of the Galatian churches, which is everything north, a lot of what is north of Jerusalem, is responding to that. But first of all, he has to lay down his apostleship. In other words, he has to make sure they, as the Galatian churches receive this letter, that they themselves will look at Paul and say, yes, you are authoritative. You can speak for God. 
And that's why in verses 13 to 24 of chapter 1, if you're in chapter 2, just go back to chapter 1, he is defending the fact. In fact, verse 11 and 12, 1, 11 and 12 is really the summary of the entire two chapters. And I know we looked at it a number of times, but verse 11 says, I want you to know, my brethren, that the gospel which, which was preached to me by me is not according to man. I didn't receive it from man. I re- received it, verse 12, through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the rest of the chapter 1, Paul is arguing that he had been an apostle long before he ever met an apostle. He was an apostle through Christ, not because Peter laid his hands on him or something like that. In fact, he even said, verse 16, when I got saved, or after I was saved, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. It was only after a few years, three years, verse 18, that, even, that I even saw Peter, and it was only for a few days, and I only saw James you know, there too. In other words, what I'm teaching you is not from man. I got it directly from Christ. Well, then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he next showed how the other apostles recognized him as an apostle of, in his own right. In other words... He says, verse 1 of chapter 2, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem. This was his third trip. I believe it was the Jerusalem council. He took a couple people, uh, a circumcised Jew named Barnabas, a co-worker, and then Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile. The idea was this. He's going to meet with the, the, the Jewish leaders of the Jerusalem church. And what are they going to say about this uncircumcised Gentile named Titus? And look at verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He went in, told them about justification by faith alone. You do not have to become a Jew to be saved. And all the Jewish leaders, I'm talking about Peter, James, and John, the council, agreed with them. There was unity as far as the gospel. And that's what verses 1 to 10 is. So understand that the Jerusalem Council has already taken place, and now we come to verse 11, and there's a conflict. There's a conflict with not just a Christian, not just a leader, in one sense, the Christian, the leader of the Jewish side of the Christian church, and that's with Peter. I mean, can you imagine the, the tension? I mean, just the tension? By the way, do we all realize that we're all sinners? Do we all realize that none of us are perfect? <clears throat> that we all make mistakes? That sometimes we do not represent the gospel well? We fail? That's what we're seeing here. Peter, we see Peter's failure. You know, I mean, if there was one apostle that we really see as one who uh, God has allowed to see his weakness, <clears throat> it was the key Jewish leader named Peter. We see his mistakes. We see his foibles at times and actually his sin and today we see one of his sins verse 11 let's read 11 to 16 now then peter had now excuse me now when peter had come to antioch and by the way paul was already at antioch with uh, barnabas they were pastor pastoring a church there apparently i withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for before certain men came from james he would eat with the gentiles but when they came you know they judaizers came He withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, 
if you being a Jew <coughs> live in the manner of a Gentile and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. No flesh. No flesh will be justified. <coughs> by the way, verse 16, I believe, is the key verse of, of Galatians. It's kind of like the, the pinnacle. And from there, he explains everything about uh, uh, Galatians 2.16. That's where we get justification by faith alone. That's the Reformation cry. It's all out of Galatians and many other books, but right there you see it summarized. (coughs) Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we had a disagreement. I mean, look at verse 11. It says, I withstood him to his face. And you might be asking, well, why does he bring up this incident? Now, now think about this. He's establishing his apostleship. And he, not only did he say verse 1 to 10, hey, listen, Peter, James, and John agreed with me when I didn't circumcise Titus, but now he's going to show, listen, and I even confronted the key apostle on doctrine, and he listened. He listened to what I had to say. He reprimanded Peter. You ever been reprimanded by somebody? not fun it's hard but Peter agreed with Paul I want you to hear this Peter agreed with Paul Peter listened and did what Paul said and this was another proof in fact the final proof of Paul's authority that's why he's bringing this up at this time in the letter you know he's not just he's not bringing it up just to you know put it in Peter's face it has nothing to do with it he's establishing his apostleship so that when the when the letter of Galatians Galatians goes to the churches they they say yeah I guess that is true you know Paul had equal authority with Peter and the other apostles in fact he was able to even confront him to Paul this dispute was the final proof that he was a genuine apostle of the one true gospel of free grace he had equal authority Well, let's look at the the two parts of this passage. The first part is found in verses 11 to 13. And that's that's the deviation of Peter. If you have an outline, you want to write it in. Deviation, the deviation of Peter. It's where Peter went astray. Peter went astray. I got to find, is there a cup here? I'll have to drink it out of a bottle. My throat was a little sore this week. The first thing we find about the deviation of Peter is the conflict. In other words, what did he do? Again, Peter, some versions say Cephas, had come to Antioch. Now, Antioch was a huge city in that day and age. It was, I think, the third largest of the Roman Empire. It had about a half a million people. And I meant to bring a map, but if you think of Jerusalem, where Jerusalem would go all the way up just before where the, where the Mediterranean, where the Medi- very top of the Mediterranean, that corner, that's where Antioch was located. It was about 300 miles away from Jerusalem. 300 miles being that this error had gone that far. That's why I'm saying that. In the, in the city of Antioch, about 10% of the, the people were Jewish. So now you're talking about 50,000 Jews in that city. And after Paul gets saved, and, and, and he finally lands in Antioch for a number of years, and I believe him and Barnabas were pastoring a church there, pastoring the people there. They were serving and teaching. But then Peter came. 
Now, now notice this. It says, he withstood him. He opposed him. It carries the meaning of hindering or forbidding. It's kind of a defensive stand. In other words, what Paul did for Peter was he was, def- was, was pushing him back towards the direction that he was going. And just keep that in your mind. As we go through, you'll start seeing what was happening there. Because he was to, he was to be blamed. Now that word blamed, literally, I mean, the idea is that he sinned. See, some people would say this. Well, P- Peter just kind of went off, but it wasn't sinful. Actually, it was. He had sinned. Paul confronted Peter because he was sinning. It was, in one sense, a sin of omission, not commission. He wasn't, it was omission. He wasn't doing something that he should have been doing. He stood, I think, in the New American says, condemned. Now, again, it doesn't mean that he, lost his, he was losing his salvation. What he means is that he was guilty. He was guilty. Here's the, the key apostle to the Jews was guilty of something. He was guilty of misrepresenting the gospel. That's what he was guilty of. Now, again, you might say, well, of course Peter knew he was at the Jerusalem council. Yeah, he knew the truth. He just wasn't living the truth. And because of that, he was misrepresenting what the truth was, the gospel was. And I believe this also. Because of what he was doing, he was hurting the Gentiles. Can you imagine if I, if I said it this way? Well, this side is the good side, so all men just sit here. Women, I don't care where you sit, it's probably over there is best. What if I divided up the church? What if God divided up the church? The men, that's really what God cares about. Women, I'm glad you're here, but whatever. Yeah. See, the Jews thought in those terms. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was like a denial of Judaism to be with Gentiles. And there was this great divide. And what God wanted, I mean, I want you to see this. What God wanted was, when it was all said and done, that Gentiles and Jews would live in harmony and unity in the church. That was a huge um, thing to overcome in that day. We don't think anything of it. Some of you even may be Jewish, and we don't even know who you are because it's no big deal because we, this has been so established that there's no difference between male and female, Gentiles or Jews. But back then... There was this major stigma. Jews didn't hang out with Gentiles. All right, so you kind of starting to get... So there's this conflict, and we're going to see the conflict as it plays out. But it was so bad that Paul actually said he was to be blamed. What he was doing was sinful. Well, let's look at the cause, which is verse 12. Again, this is the situation. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. All right, so what Peter did is, Peter went from Jerusalem 300 miles up to Antioch, apparently to encourage the believers. Most of the people in that uh, Gentile city, again, would be Gentile, but there was this large population of Jews. Again, a half a million people. That's bigger than, that's like two and a half sides of what Johnson City, Binghamton, and Endicott used to be. I mean, it's it's a, a major amount of people right there. And so he goes up there, but, but there's an interesting, it said he would eat with the Gentiles. And, and the word eat meant he was continuous, continually sitting down, habitually sitting down and eating meals with the Gentiles. It was a regular practice of Peter to get together with the Gentiles and eat meals with them. But notice it says, but apparently Peter had been in Antioch for some time serving and ministering this way. 
before, again, before certain men came. So, in other words, he had been there for a number, for a, a, quite a while, sitting down, eating with the, the Gentiles. But then these men came. Certain men came from James. These are the Judaizers. But then men came claiming to be representing uh, James, the Jerusalem church, the Lord's half-brother. <coughs> Again, they weren't. See, what it was is the Judaizers were claiming to be from the Jerusalem church. In other words, you have to listen to us because we're from the mother church. They're telling you you have to be under the law. So these guys crept in. They came, gravitated towards the Antioch churches. They claimed that Gentiles needed to be circumcised and to keep the Old Testament laws. They had to be, you know, keep the Old Testament laws to be a Christian. The implication was this, that the Gentiles were unclean and they needed to be avoided. I mean, just think about this, this uh, fraction in the church, the major potential. So uh, Paul and Barnabas are ministering to these churches in Antioch, these believers. Peter gravitates there after some years. He pr- apparently stays there for a while. The, the implication of the word eat means he did it continuously, habitually. It was a normal practice of Peter's to sit down at meals, encourage people. Then after some time, these Judaizers came up. They were spreading the false truth. And something happened. We'll see that in a moment. By the way, the truth that came out of the, the, the Jerusalem Council was this, that the Gentile Christians um, had, to, had been released from the obligation of being circumcised and, under, and undertaking to keep the Mosaic Law. Right? They were released from that. But now think about the other side. The Jewish Christians had not been required to give up the ancestral mode of life. In other words, they could maintain their heritage by keeping the ceremonial law. One group, you don't have to keep the ceremonial law. But to the Jewish people who gotten saved, you know what, you can keep the ceremonial law. There's no problem with that. In other words, Jewish person, you don't have to sit down and eat pork. Can you imagine if that was what was told to them? Like after all these years, you take a 50-year-old woman. She had all these years stayed away from these forbidden uh, foods. And all of a sudden she gets saved. And then she was forced because God had told her, not that this happened. But what if God had said, now, to really show that you're a Christian, you need to eat pork. Can you imagine how much that would have hurt to her conscience? So the Gentiles could still eat pork, keep eating pork. But the Jewish people, they would keep after their, <coughs> their heritage. So much of Judaism had to do with heritage. But see, that's the problem. How could the Jewish Christians continue to live under the law in the right sense if they had companionship with the Gentiles in a way which would render the strict observance of the law impossible? How can these two groups of people get together? Because who knows, this Gentile might be serving pork. So now what do I do? Just even look at it. In fact, to be honest with you, even to be in his presence is, is, is like I'm saying, I'm against the law of God. Now again, the truth of the gospel, let's, let's go back to the truth. I know I'm laying out a few things and we'll get it all straight here. But the truth of the gospel is there, is there is neither race nor class nor sex or any other distinction in Christ. Right? Go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. You see this. And we'll be here in a few weeks. Verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, 
And I can say that of you today. If if you have recognized your sin and you have placed your faith in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, in Jesus Christ, you are a son of God. For as many of you as, as were baptized into Christ, that's baptized, once you got saved, you were placed into the body of Christ. That's a spiritual act by the Holy Spirit. You, have put in, uh, you, you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You're one. But just because you say you're one, you remember, I, the Jews came from a different heritage than the Greeks. I mean, the Greeks could go to the temple uh, offering place, buy a piece of meat offered to Zeus, go home, sit it, slap it down, put it on the grill. Man, that was great. But you serve that to a Jew and his conscience was con- immediately uh, uh, violated. So how do the Greeks and the Jews get together? And, and dining habits are huge. What we eat and with whom we eat it says something about who we are. Is that true? What we eat and whom we eat it with. I mean, in, in a Christian realm, it is a sign of fellowship and community and partnership and friendship, who I eat meals with. It really is. And back then, it was even more of a case. I mean, who you served at your dinner table spoke about who you were and who your friendships were and who your partnerships and who were you unified with. In fact, uh, Jochem uh, Jeremiah, he he just died here a little bit ago, but he wrote this. In Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. Okay? Table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who share in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which, which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. So I break bread. I'm not talking communion. I'm just talking, I'm passing bread, I'm passing meat, I'm passing. And, and, and it's like to a Jewish thinker, that's, oh, we're all together. We're like a family here, even though you're not part of my biological family. Meals were sacred to the Jews. So how could Jews have fellowship with Gentiles at mealtime? Their Jewish tradition even said it this, eat not with them, the Gentiles, for their works are unclean. <coughs> so you, you're living in a town in Antioch, and you, you all of a sudden realize in Christ we're one, and now I can invite my Gentile friends, but they're considered dogs as far as my tradition goes. See, how could a Jewish Christian keep kosher if they had to eat with the Gentiles who ate the wrong food, prepared the wrong way, and in some cases offered to the wrong God? We have a huge problem here. See, to an Orthodox Jew, sitting down to eat with the pagans was an act of defiant rebellion. So I gave you a lot about that because, see, when it just talks about Peter eating with the Gentiles, understand that was a huge thing even in Peter's life. He had to reject what the tradition said and and only look at what God had told him. I mean, we see this even in our own cultural um, example, you know, from history in America. Uh, Whites and blacks. Hasn't that been a big issue over the years? Still is. In fact, probably more now than it's ever been, at least in my lifetime. There was a story of the Black Hall of Famer pitcher Bob Gibson. Um, 
he discovered this prejudice a number of years ago. He became uh, one of the major leaguers and um, he walked onto the team bus one day and saw a white ball player drinking an orange soda. He, t- he, he uh, turned to him and said, that looks really good. Can I have a swig? To which the teammate looked at him, looked at his drink, looked back at Gibson and said, I'll save you some. In other words, what he meant was that his white lips would not share a drink with the black man. Yeah, I'll save you some. You're not going to drink it until I'm done. All right, so there's prejudice. There's prejudice in race, and that's only over skin color. Think about if it had to do with religion. Well, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, remember what the Christians were doing? They were coming, they were bringing their own food. It was called a love feast before the Lord's table. And what they were supposed to do was to show that they were one and share. But what were they doing? You don't have to even turn there. But what were they doing? They were bringing their own food and not sharing. You know, this person had, you know, filet mignon and some shrimp on the side and lobster tail. And this other person came, came in with a can of beans and not even enough for the whole family. And basically the rich people were saying, well, you know, let me eat my shrimp and steak and shrimp, but you guys eat your beans. And, and Paul got very upset and said, you know, you're causing division, you're divisive. Because, what, because a meal should be that you're showing unity. I just want you to get the idea. To a Jew, the mealtime showed unity with everyone that was sitting around. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says it this way, verse 11, But now I, I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. If you're named a Christian who is sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. And then he says this, not to even eat with such a person, because when you sit down, you're showing camaraderie and unity with this person. And if they're a brother, they, they see that they're a brother, and they're sexually immoral, don't even eat with that person. And I believe that principle still applies to this day. I, this is what I mean by this. If someone's under church discipline, don't bring them into your home and make them feel all welcome, because what God wants to do is drive them to repentance, and we might just make them feel comfortable. So we see a lot of different things. Well, look at, look at the sin, verse 12. But when they came, they, second part of verse 12, they, they, the Judaizers, he withdrew and separated himself. He became aloof. Now again, Peter knew better. He had been at the Jerusalem council. In fact, if you go back even verse, go back to Acts 10. Just keep your hand in Galatians, but Acts 10. Peter knew the gospel. Peter knew the truth. Peter had personally been told by God to... Bring in the Gentiles the church, in the church. In Acts chapter 10, we see the, the uh, centurion Gentile Cornelius praying, but he was a, a God-fearing man, verse 1. He was devout. He feared God. He prayed. And God is going to answer his prayer through Peter. Look at verse 9. The next day, as some of his servants were coming, they went on their way, on their journey, and drew near to the city. Peter went up to the housetop to pray. That's about 12 o'clock. And he fell into a trance, verse 10. And he saw this great sheet come down, bound on four corners. And inside the sheet, there was all these animals. And the voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now again, a good Jew. Wait a second. These are unclean. Not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. 
And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed you must not call common. And then a third time it came. Third time, three times. I mean, God is saying, no, listen, Peter, things are changing. Verse 17, Now while Peter wondered within himself what the vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry and basically got to his house. They stayed overnight, went back to Cornelius. But look at verse 28. He gets the understanding of the vision. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one one of another's nation. Now now catch what he just said. You you know how unlawful that is. To Judaism, we don't do those things. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So through the vision, God got Peter to understand, listen, the church is not going to be just Jews now. It's going to be made up of Gentiles too. If you go down to verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, <clears throat> whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And there's a revival that breaks out in verse 44. And the Holy Spirit falls on all those of the circumcision who believe were astonished as many as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also and they spoke in tongues. By the way, the reason they spoke in tongues was to identify, hey, listen, God is working in them too. And again, tongues there is a known language. It's not gibberish. It's a known language. It's, listen, God is working in them too, being the Gentiles. So Peter knew all this. And then again, Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council. We, went, we looked at that last week. So Peter should have known better that God was doing a marvelous work. The Gentiles were, be brought, were being brought in. But look at what, look at what it says in, in Acts, um, or excuse me, Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 2. Where am I at? Okay, Galatians chapter 2, verse, uh, what is it? 12. Before certain men came from James, he would not eat with them. But when they came, he withdrew. That withdrew is in the imperfect. In other words, it was very carefully calculated. It's like a strategic warfare move. He, he calculated, he started withdrawing. He didn't announce it. It kind of probably played out like this. The Jewish fellow asked Peter to come over for Wednesday uh, lunch. And he just withdrew. Nah, I can't come to lunch with you today. And then a, a couple days later, someone else asked Peter over. And he said, I just can't come out to lunch with you this day. And hey, could you stop over for supper? Nah, I'm going to be busy. I'm going to be doing some fishing. Whatever. And he just withdrew. It was a calculated move. But we find out why. Why did he compromise? Fearing those who were of the circumcision. That's why he compromised. He knew what the truth was, but he feared those who were of the circumcision. He backed away. He wasn't showing what the true gospel was. The true gospel is we're one in Christ neither Jew nor Gentile. But by Peter now moving away from the Gentiles, when the Jews came, those Jews from Jerusalem, he was, he was actually, he was saying with his lips there is unity, but he was saying with his actions that really God saw two different groups, Gentiles and Jews. Very, very serious. And you might ask the, the question, well, why, why was he fearful? Why was he fearful? One man said this, what Peter did was not a matter of principle, it was a, it was a case of cowardice. 
He was a coward. He wasn't fearing for his life because these Judaizers were not with the Sanhedrin. They were not part of the Sanhedrin. See, the Sanhedrin could literally get you to be thrown into jail. They could bring persecution in your life. These were not part of Sanhedrin. They could not hurt you physically. They could not kill Peter. So the question is, what was he fearful? He was fearful of being ridiculed and maligned, especially back in Jerusalem, of losing his popularity. That's, that has to be what he was fearful of. It wasn't physical. By the way, are you ever, are, are you ever fearful of being maligned and mocked? Maybe that people won't look at you the same way if they find out that you're a Christian or follower of Christ. What's interesting with Peter, this is not the first time it's happened. This is at least the fourth time because we know of three other times in Scripture where he denied the Lord. See, what we see in uh, Galatians chapter 2 is the old, weak, fearful, vacillating Peter. And, And there's an application here. Even gifted leaders of the gospel can commit serious transgressions. Somehow we think that we get to these levels of Christianity where now I'm not going to be doing that any longer. Does God ever show you that's false in your life because you think you've gotten beyond a sin and all of a sudden you fall back into it? Well, I know I used to use my mouth in a very wicked way, but at least I don't swear like that anymore. And then three days later, God puts you in a situation and something flies out and you're like, where does that come from? Maybe God's reminding you we still have the old flesh. And that will be with us till the day we see Christ. And we see that with Peter. You see him in his fleshly state. We find it difficult to be consistent in our spiritual commitments. We have our triumphs and then we have our failures. And I think God allows us to be humbled through those. I remember a story of a former Archbishop of Canterbury. Again, the the leader of the English church. And he was asked by a reporter if he believed in God. The leader of the English church, do you believe in God? This is what he said. Unfortunately, the question caught him off guard. He said, well, sort of. It depends on what you mean by God. Well, maybe that's what he really believed, but maybe it was just because he was afraid. Afraid of what the person might think. Philip Ryken said this, When the fear of people overcomes the fear of God, we are likely to deny the gospel. When the fear of people overcomes the fear of God, we are likely to deny the gospel. In other words, unless we are willing to stand up for God at work on Monday, we are just pretending at church on Sunday. If you're not willing to stand up for God during the week, if you're not ready to proclaim Him in the normal life, then in one very real sense, you're just pretending today. And Peter, he, in a moment, he was pretending. So that's his sin. Well, let's look at the consequence. Look at the consequence. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite. Because people follow leaders. The rest of the Jews followed Peter and became the hypocrite. Well, that would have been bad enough so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Barnabas was the co-pastor of that church. People follow leaders, but leaders follow leaders as well. 
And here's the, the second leader of that church following the hypocrisy. Because what happens teaches. What happens teaches. What you're doing in your life, how you're living your life teaches. It's constantly teaching. We're constantly teaching. You're preaching a sermon with your life, if you want to say it that way. <clears throat> That's why in 1 Corinthians 5, when we had the immoral person, remember the one living with his uh, father's wife? Paul said... It's permeating the church like yeast. Sin will permeate the church like yeast. Because what happens teaches. That's why it was so important back in Galatians chapter 2, the last, last week's lesson, that when Titus, when Paul was told, I mean, was considering whether to circumcise Titus, that he didn't. Because if he had, he would be promoting the thought that Gentiles had to become like Jews. So that, that was the consequence. Peter's actions affected the entire congregation and even the, even the other pastor, Barnabas. <laughs> it says he became a hypocrite. The word hypocrite was used of an actor. In other words, he wore a mask to indicate a certain mood. He masked his true self. In other words, he became the hypocrite. He, he started living a double life, a double standard. He preached truth, lived error. He was a hypocrite. By the way, do you preach truth and live error? You can do that very easy at home. Oh, kids, you shouldn't be watching that. You need to go to bed so I can finish the movie. <coughs> yeah, you've got to be very careful. It's very easy to live a hypocritical life. Preaching truth, speaking truth, having devotions, living like a hypocrite, living not the truth. Would you be ashamed if your life was put up on this screen of this last week? Most of us would in some respect. Some of us be hugely ashamed. Especially if we go be, if God would put up not only the actions of our life, but the words that we said and the thoughts that we had. We're all battling. We're all hypocrites. It's just the question is, how, how, how defined is it, as it were? I shouldn't say that. Some people are not because as they sin, they confess, and that's not hypocritical. But some of us live a double standard. Some, sometimes parts of our life, huge part. So that's the consequence. What we do teaches. Peter's an example and people are following, even, even Barnabas. Well, let's look at the response of Paul. I only have a couple minutes. Verses 14 looks at his response. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth. And notice he doesn't say he. When I saw that they were not straightforward. And I don't think he's talking about the Judaizers. I think he's talking about Peter, they, and Barnabas. They being the other Jews in the church, even the Gentiles. When I saw that, you know, that they were not straightforward about the truth. See, Paul couldn't, he couldn't just bypass this. He had to confront. So the first is confrontation. By the way, isn't that a hard word? Oh, confrontation. You know, some people really hate to confront. I suppose none of us want to. You know, we don't want to cause any trouble or make a scene. But many of us just avoid it at all costs. Avoid confrontation. Avoid confrontation. Avoid conflict. But Paul didn't care what anybody else thought. Even if it was another apostle, he cared, he cared enough to confront. I want you to see that he cared enough to confront. So he went. And when he saw that they were not straightforward about the, uh, the truth. And, and by the way, it says... That, that I said to Peter before them all. 
You know, Matthew 18 says this, if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother, try to work it out, so that see if you could, between you and him alone. Um, what I'm getting at is this. When it comes to sin, the mostly, most of the time what you're told to do is you go to that person who is sinning and you keep it in the tightest circle possible. But when it comes to a public sin, when it comes to a leader who has committed a public sin, you tell it to them all. I know this is hard words, especially because we're looking to add on new elders, some of which are, are right here today, and you're considering whether or not you want to be an elder. And now I'm telling that if you ever sin publicly, you have to be brought up publicly. That kind of puts the, uh, the pressure on it, saying, well, I don't know if I want to be an elder. But that's what really the Bible says. In fact, go over to, keep your hand in Galatians, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Because here Paul lays out how do you treat a, a leader? How do you treat... Um, a leader in the church, whether it be uh, an elder or an apostle, a pastor. First uh, Timothy ch- uh, chapter five verse nineteen. See, I've heard for years this statement: "Don't touch the Lord's anointed." Have you ever heard that? Don't touch the Lord's anointed. I mean, it's almost like this: if if, if you're named a pastor, like whatever you say is infallible. Do you see how foolish that is? Do you see how this passage works directly against that thought? Don't touch the Lord's anointed. I mean, Peter, the leader, was confronted. I think many pastors, some pastors should be confronted. It would help the church. Verse 19. First of all, if you're going to go to an elder, be cautious. Do not receive an accusation. This is 1 Timothy 5.19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from from two or three witnesses. That goes back to the Old Testament, but the idea is this. If you ever confront an elder, be very, very cautious. Because next to my life in Christ, my character is the most valuable possession I own. I have. My character. You have to be careful when you're talking about a pastor or elder or leader. Be cautious. Make sure that it's substantiated. That's what he means by two or three. Do not gossip about a leader. I pray God's judgment on anybody who, who gossip and slanders a leader. And I don't mean that for my sake. I'm saying for the church's sake. And I don't mean in this church. I mean any. Do not slander because if you have a problem, you go to the person, right? Isn't that true? It's funny how so many times we know truth, but we don't practice it. But look, let's go on. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. The rest, who are the, the rest? The rest of the congregation, the rest of the elders. So we should not only be cautious, but verse 20 says we must be bold. We must be courageous. I think the church has lost its nerve sometimes. In fact, I think sometimes it's the pastors who are teaching, don't touch the Lord's anointed. Look at verse 21. Not only are we supposed to be cautious and bold and courageous, but we should be impartial. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. In other words, don't prejudge as guilty unless we find out that he is. Still give him some wiggle room to see if maybe we're getting this wrong, maybe the information is wrong. Doing nothing with partiality, in other words, preferential treatment. In other words, if they have sinned, you confront that. Don't let sin reign in the church because it will be like yeast. It will permeate the church. So, be cautious, be bold, be impartial. That's what Paul would say later on in First Peter or First uh, Timothy. 
We have to do that. Those are hard sayings. But you know what? I, I showed you that because that's what Paul did. He got the facts. He went directly to him. And he wasn't impartial. He confronted him. He, he played out exactly what he, had, he wrote about later on in Timothy. He did it with confidence. I mean, notice he... When he was, because again, it was the gospel. I want you to see this. It was the gospel that was going to be destroyed if he didn't do it. They were not straightforward, verse 14, about the truth of the gospel. That's why he went. He had to. Because if their actions, if Peter's actions showed, okay, when Jews were around, he backed away from the Gentiles. Apparently there's two gospels. It's truly not Jew and Gentile are equal in Christ. You see how that's so destructive to the truth of the gospel? And that's why he closes this section, uh, verses 15 and 16. Let's just read 16 for time. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. That's why he closed there. Because he's summarizing everything. He's basically summarizing the first two chapters of Galatians right there. He's saying, listen, this is why I stood and, and I didn't go running up to the apostles in chapter 1. This is why at the Jerusalem council I stayed strong and did not have Titus circumcised and this is why I was willing to confront Peter because a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Christ that's why I did it the truth of of salvation is grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone Jesus Christ when we get saved make us all one we are one part of one family and we can all fellowship together and even as a Jew, if I said, I, I'm not going to call you unclean if I was a Jew. I'm going to sit down. And if you have pork, I may not eat it, but I'm not going to condemn you for it because I know you don't have to be under the Old Testament law. For conscience sake, I may not have any. If I find out that you just offered this to the, the goddess uh, uh, God uh, Hermes, I might, I might refuse to eat it, but I understand that it's okay for you to eat it. That's consistent with 1 Corinthians 8. But you see all the struggles that were happening? Isn't it easy for Christians to say, well, this is my standard, it must be your standard, and if it's not, you're, you're less than a Christian? But here, we're all one in Christ. I, I hope we come out with that after the whole study of Galatians. What happened as a result? Not only is confidence, but the concord. The con- when I, I would use the word concord in, in the sense of harmony and unity. There was harmony and unity. We don't see it in this passage, but we see it when Peter... And 2 Peter refers back to Paul. This is, this is what Peter writes a few years later about Paul. This is what he writes. 2 Peter 3.15 Also our beloved brother Paul. Our beloved brother Paul. Our beloved brother Paul. Peter looks at Paul as a beloved brother. If you were confronted before them all, would you look at that confronter as a beloved brother? Many of us wouldn't. Well... He embarrassed me in front of the whole church. I'll never go back there again. Huh. Gone. Not Peter. Peter was spirit-filled. Oh, Peter had his failures, but Peter was a humble man, and he called Paul our beloved brother. And then he goes on, according to the wisdom given to him. And I think when he wrote that, he wasn't just talking about his books. He was talking about that incident. He had wisdom. I thank thank Paul that he came and confronted me before them all because if not my life would be an hypocrisy to the gospel of Jesus Christ there was unity also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him has written to you listen to Paul he's a beloved friend listen to Paul he corrected me when I was in error would you think that way 
Let me give you five principles you can take home very quickly. What can we learn? You have to fill these in if you want them. First of all, that even gifted leaders of the gospel, gifted leaders of the gospel can commit serious transgression. Even becoming guilty of the very errors and sins they once strongly preached against. It's funny, but I, I, I find that in my own life sometimes and others. Sometimes the sins we preach against the hardest are the ones we're struggling with the most. And sometimes I find that in parents too. We really try to get our kids to go on this path. And it'd be, I wish we could sometimes get a mirror and say, well, maybe I need to change first. Number two, we learn that faithfulness involves more than believing the right doctrine. We know that it's more than just believing the right doctrine. Our behavior can undermine our belief. It is possible for Christians to believe the gospel in their hearts and even confess it with their mouths, yet deny it with their lives. I mean, if you worked at a place for more than a year, do they know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Many times we deny the gospel by just being quiet. It's right doctrine without right behavior always produces hypocrisy. You're living a, a, in a hypocritical life because you're, you're looking one way. Oh, he's just a good man. Well, no, no, he's a Christian. And yet maybe they don't know you are. You can destroy with your actions what you believe in your heart. It's all saying that same thing. You know, there's a tragic example of this in Southern Presbyterian Church. Uh, back years ago, what they used to do is they would give a token to those who could take communion, and it was usually silver. But what they did back in the southern churches is they would give the white folk silver tokens, and they would give the black folk base metal tokens. And then they would serve the communion first to the white folk, and then to the black folk. Do you see how even then they were... They were speaking the truth of the gospel, but playing it out differently. As though the black folk were less than the white folk. We have to be careful. What do our actions say? Our friendships, our ministry partners, our partnerships. What, all the different people that we hang with, and those who we minister to, and those who we work for. What is, are we presenting the gospel truthfully? Or are we hiding because, of, because we're afraid? Or as a church, it's church discipline. We say that we must have purity in the church, but if we're never willing to do church discipline on one who is an unrepentant Christian that's a member of our church, then what we're saying is we believe in purity, but we're not going to live purity, and that's hypocrisy. Do you see how that plays? By the way, that's very, very hard, and at times I think even our church has failed in that area. Number three, we learn that truth is more important than outward harmony and peace. Truth is more important than those other two things, outward harmony and peace. Fellowship, harmony, unity is built on truth. Compromise only weakens the church. And yet sometimes we are unwilling to speak truth because the harmony and the peace of the church might be shaken. And yet Paul went in, I believe Paul went in humbly and gently. And you can see his attitude in Galatians 6.1. I will be there. But Galatians 6.1 says, basically, if a man is overtaken a fall, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness and humility. And I think that's how Paul approached Peter. Truth 
must be defended. Number four, we must oppose those who deny the gospel. We must oppose those who deny the gospel. Situational ethics would say this. Well, yeah, it's wrong most of the time, but let's face it, Peter's a great guy and he's a minister of of the gospel. We better not touch Peter right now. Because I'm sure he had good intentions. And sometimes we don't live the purity of the gospel because we're giving too much emphasis on the person. What are, what are they going to think? They might leave our church. We might, they, might, they might have their feelings hurt. Well, I hope so. They're sinning against God. Number five, we learn that falsehood is not to be ignored regardless of the consequences that opposition to it may bring. Regardless of the consequences can't be ignored. So if I show a video of Billy Graham because he is showing greater mercy, you shouldn't say, why would you ever put Billy Graham up there? Because it's the truth of the gospel. If I say, you know, Joel Osteen is one of the biggest promoters of prosperity theology out there today, you need to soak that up and say, you know, I need to evaluate how he's preaching. Because he's not preaching Christ, he's preaching prosperity. And you may look at me and say, why would you point out names? Because the thing that God has given me more than anything else, this is my number one, this is why I exist. To protect you from error. That's my only purpose on this earth. I need to protect the people that God is, is, I say, co-laborers together with me from error. And if there's error out there, I need to point it out because I don't want you going down the wrong path. So, It should bring us no joy to point out error. That's how I want to end. It should bring us no joy to point out error. But it must be done because it's a matter of life and death eternally. It should bring us no joy though. Do you you know anybody where it brings them joy? I know some people like this. That are leaders in the church and it's almost like they're looking for error. Because they want to point it out. It's almost like, yeah, let me... It's like the next banner that I can wave. These guys are condemned. Follow me. It should bring us no joy to point out error. It should break our heart because when you see error, that means that people are following that error. It should bring us no joy, but you know, it must be done because there are eternal things that are at stake. Eternal life is at stake. Is it Christ plus works or Christ alone? Thankfully, it's very clear. We are justified by faith in Christ, right? Christ alone. We need to raise that banner and anybody that's against that banner, that statement, that that truth, we need to expose. Whether it brings disharmony to a the local church or a group of people or your own family, I, I trust that you wave the the banner of truth and you wave it very high. Some of us wave it like this. You know, just high enough where I can not feel guilty or we feel guilty, we need to wave it high because it's the Master's truth that we're waving. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Apostle Paul who was willing to confront error. Father, we thank You for the Apostle Peter who who received the, the, the confrontation with a loving heart who remained on the team, who was unified, 
It was truly humble. Lord, I pray that you would help us to evaluate our own lives. Help us not to put people on a pedestal. We're all sinners saved by grace. We all have faults and sins. Lord, for the sake of peace and harmony, I pray that we would never forsake the truth. And Lord, I also pray that as believers, that we will not be hypocrites. That the truth we proclaim would be lived out in our life. And if there are areas that need to change, even as of right now, I pray that we would be very quick to confess that to you and do a directional change. I pray that these principles will be thought of beyond just this moment, that you would be transforming our hearts. Lord, again, we thank you that salvation is not by works. It's only through faith in the sacrifice that you have done for us. Lord, we love you. It's so easy for us to say, and yet it is true, we do love you. And now we ask that we will be able to follow you effectively. Give us the strength, give us the power to do this. In Christ's name, amen.